right off the bat, I'm going to apologize. I know this is being uploaded a day later than what it was supposed to, but I've been very busy throughout the week. And also, the further I get into this top 100, the more I know about these players and the more I want to talk about certain aspects of them. So, it's been taking a lot of time doing research, but it's here, so we're going to get into it. Um, but first, this week has been tough for basketball fans. Um, Bobby Knight and Walter Davis have passed away both pretty, I mean, within 24 hours. And if you know, you know me, I'm a Purdue fan and I have talked about it with a bunch of people and no matter how hard nosed of a Purdue fan that you are, God, you got to respect Bobby Knight and what he did at IU. Um, it, it was a tough, it's a tough loss for basketball in general, and, um, yeah, it's just unbelievable, um, hoping he rests easy, and, uh, yeah, it was tough, and Walter Davis, an incredible player, underrated in, in many aspects, um, again, hope that their fam, I mean, prayer, thoughts and prayers go out to their families, and, um, yeah, I hope uh, maybe I can talk more in depth about it here in a couple weeks after the top 100 is done. So, um, yeah, let's go ahead, get into the top 100, and um, yeah, hope you enjoy. Hit the music. You're listening to The Assist with Trevor Hart. Number 60, Elvin Hayes. playing a beautifully controlled game. They're running when they should run. They're making the transition. Elvin Hayes has 17 rebounds in this game. Well, Philly more or less played themselves in this hole that they're in right now by the selections of their shots. Driving inside is Charles Johnson. Elvin Hayes is definitely a guy that deserves a lot more credit. There are plenty of players that get put under the do-it-all umbrella but I swear to you that Hayes deserves it more than most. He could score an insane amount. 21 points per game for his career. He could rebound and defend at all phases. And even had one of the smoothest and quickest turnaround jump shots ever. All 12 of his all-star appearances came in his first 12 years in the league. His first three came in San Diego where he would start out his career by leading the league and scoring at 28.4 points per game as a rookie in 68-69. The second to do so after Wilt did so in 59-60. Somehow, though, he did not win Rookie of the Year, as that would go to Wes Unseld, who would also win the MVP that year. Then he followed up that year by leading the league in rebounds and minutes per game. After those three years in San Diego, the team would move to Houston where he would still put up an insane 25.2 points per game, 14.6 rebounds, and 3.3 assists per game as a center. He would then be traded to the Baltimore Bullets for Jack Marin, who is surprisingly not too bad of a player as a two-time All-Star. 
He's just not Elvin Hayes. The Big E would join the very player that took his Rookie of the Year and possible MVP away from him, Wes Unseld, as he would move over to the power forward position. By the way, Hayes was already an undersized center in San Diego or Houston, but he got to Baltimore to become the power forward to a six foot seven unselled so he could man the middle. Just crazy to me. The NBA, NBA was pretty weird back in the day. The Bullets would then move to Washington, D.C. to become the Capital Bullets for a season before becoming the Washington Bullets. In that one year as the Capitals, Hayes would lead the league in rebounds for a second time, averaging 18.1 a game. It would also be the first year that blocks were counted as an official stat, and he would average three a game. Unseldon Hayes, alongside a solid Phil Chenier at the shooting guard, would make the NBA Finals in 1975 and lose to Rick Barry and the Warriors in four games. Hayes would average 20.8 points, 10.8 rebounds, 1.5 steals, and 2.8 blocks in the series. They would not make the finals again until 1978, and they would make it count this time. The Bullets, adding Bob Dandridge, but losing Phil Chenier earlier in the season, had to square off against a Supersonics team that had downtown Freddie Brown, Dennis Johnson, and Jack Sigma. The series would go to seven games as the Bullets would take the decisive game by six points. Hayes would lead the Bullets in scoring at 20.7 in a game with the rest of the stat line being 11.9 rebounds, 1.4 assists, and 1.6 steals, along with two blocks per game. The Bullets and Sonics would have a rematch the next year, and the Sonics would have their revenge in five games. Elvin would average 20 points, 18 po- excuse me, 11.8 rebounds, 1.2 assists, 0.4 steals, and two blocks per game. Hayes' all-star appearances would end in 1980-81, which would be his last year in the capital city. He would be traded back to Houston for two second-round picks. Again, it just seems like a low price for a player who just missed his first all-star game and has his first season of not scoring 20 points per game. His final three years in the league would not be that eventful as he was 36 when he got there for the second time in Houston. But nevertheless, Hayes had made more than enough of, of a case for himself to enter the Hall of Fame in 1990. Number 59, Ben Wallace. In the last five minutes, with Billy Owens on the floor, McGrady blocked by Ben Wallace. Woo! Get out of the air to keep the ball inbounds and a block look at this thing here it is although undersized for his time in the league Wallace is without question the greatest rim protector of the early 2000s as an undrafted player coming out of Virginia Union there were literally zero expectations for him and he was honestly not a great player in Washington and Orlando but he would be traded to the right place as he and Chucky Atkins were sent to the Motor City for Grant Hill which surprisingly did not work out for both teams. More on that later. Wallace would immediately make an impact, averaging 2.3 blocks per game and 13.2 rebounds in 2000-2001. He would then follow that up by leading the league in rebounds at 13 flat, less than he had averaged the year before, and 3.5 blocks 
per game, leading the league. He would obviously take the first of his four Defensive Player of the Years in that season. He would go back-to-back the next season as he would lead the league in rebounds again at 15.4 per game as he would make his first of four straight All-Star appearances. He would then win Defense Player of the Year in 04-05 and 05-06 as Ron Artest became the single slice of ham in this Ben Wallace sandwich with two slices of bread on top and bottom. He would also have his best scoring season in 0405 at 9.7 points per game. I'll have to double check at a later date, but I'm pretty sure Big Ben is the only player on this list to never average over 10 points per game in his career. In the year he did not win Defensive Player of the Year, 0304, he would help the Blue Collar Pistons win a championship, beating the Kobe Shaq Lakers in five games. Wallace would average 10.8 points per game, 13.6 rebounds, 1.4 assists, 1.8 steals, and one block per game. Going against Shaq, he would still be a solid player in Chicago and Cleveland, but there was really only one place to end his career. Back in Detroit for his final three seasons. Was he good on offense? My God, no. He only averaged 5.7 points for his career. But averaging 9.6 rebounds and 2 blocks made him more than worth it to keep him on the court as he was able to get into the Hall in 2021 because of that exact reason. Number 58, Sidney Moncrief. They trap there, Moncrief going inside. And he scored 30 points in the game, and here's the play. They do not want Moncrief in the middle of the Bulls. They try so to get to him, I but said not that quite Michael quick Cooper enough. Might the have been the best defender of his generation. Well, the only guy that was probably better was Sidney Moncrief. Moncrief was awarded with the first two ever Defensive Player of the Year awards in NBA history, 82-83 and 83-84. You can tell that Moncrief had everything it takes when it came to being a great defender. Here's what Charles Barkley had to say about Sid's game. Competitive, physical, relentless. Are those all words that describe Sidney Moncrief? Those are also words that describe a perfect defender who will make the night of the player he's guarding a living hell. Moncrief was also a great scorer that made five straight All-Stars starting in 81-82. He was also the number one guy on some great Bucks teams that could just never get over the hump of the Celtics and Pistons. His greatness will be recognized in the Hall of Fame in 2019. Number 57, Tracy McGrady. A supremely talented scorer that is somehow overlooked in NBA history. He started out in Toronto coming out of high school in 1997, and he would never crack the starting lineup consistently while, while playing for the Raptors. The one thing that did happen in Toronto was that Tracy was outshined by his cousin, Vince Carter, 
who joined the rappers Raptors in 1998. Technically 99 due to the lockout. The two would even square off in the 2000 NBA dunk contest where Vince would dominate with ease, with McGrady even assisting him in the finals. McGrady would then be traded to Orlando for a first-round pick that turned out to be Fran Vasquez. Never heard of him? Me neither. And that's because he never played in the league, even though he was the 11th pick in 2005. Either way... It would turn out to be a steal for the Magic, as he would go from a 15.4 points per game score in his last year in Toronto to 26.8 in the theme park capital of the world, as he would become an, an all-star in all four years there. The Magic would never make it out of the first round of the playoffs and even miss the postseason in McGrady's final season. It was not supposed to be this way. Because the same year they nabbed T-Mac, the Magic also got Grant Hill, but injuries would plague him and his time in Orlando, and they never got it together. T-Mac would play with high-profile players like Patrick Ewing and Sean Kemp, but it was at the end of their careers where they didn't do much. So of all these factors, McGrady had to pull his weight more, and he did that in spades by leading the league in scoring in 0-2-0-3 and 0-3-0-4 scoring 32.1 points and 28 points per game, respectively. But like I said, it did not lead to playoff success at all, which may be the reason why T-Mac is so overlooked. He would then be traded to Houston along with Reese Gaines, Juwan Howard, and Tyron Lue for Kelvin Cato, Katino Mobley, and Steve Francis. Francis would never be an All-Star again, as McGrady would make three more All-Stars with the Rockets and make a great pairing of Yao Ming. He would finally fall below 20 points per game scoring in 08-09, averaging 15.6 in 35 games. He would then be traded to the Knicks the next year and would only play 24 games in the Big Apple. The run was essentially over for T-Mac as he would spend his last two years in Detroit and Atlanta. Even though, with a slow beginning and ending, he would average 19.6 points, 5.6 rebounds, 4.4 assists, and 1.2 steals per game for his career, it would make the Hall of Fame in 2017. Number 56, Dennis Johnson. DJ now uses a Maxwell screen, got Bridgman on his back. Bird wants the basketball. Down of five in the shot clock, DJ's turnaround is good and the foul will be People consider the Larry Bird era Celtics to only have a big three, consisting of Bird, McHale, and Parrish. Well, to me, they were a big four, and DJ was the underrated engine that kept them going. What many people may not know is how great of a player he was before he even got to Boston. As I mentioned earlier, he was one of the best players on a Supersonics team that went to two straight finals and went 1-1 one one against the Bullets in 78 and 79. Johnson would average 16.6 points, 5 rebounds, and 2.9 assists, along with 2.4 blocks in their finals loss, and 22.6 points, 6 rebounds, 6 assists, 1.8 steals, and 2.2 blocks in the Revenge Series, where he would also win the finals MVP. The 78-79 season would also be the first of four straight All-Stars, 
two coming in Seattle, and the next two would come in Phoenix. As he would be traded for fellow Hall of Famer and five-time All-Star Paul Westfall. Which may be one of the more fair trades I've seen in a while, looking up all these tra- all these great players and their transactions. He would start to play the point guard position with the Suns, and it would prepare him for Boston, where he would be traded in 1983. The trade was DJ in a first and a third round pick for Rick Roby in two seconds. How did our how did Arbach keep getting away with this? There's just no way that he just kept getting away with it. No, no way. Well, it happened. The Celtics would immediately win their first championship since 1981, DJ's first year as the Lakers took them to seven games in what may be the high point of the Celtics-Lakers rivalry. Johnson would average 17.6 points, 4.6 assists, and 1.6 steals in the 84 finals. The next year would see Dennis get his fifth and final All-Star game as he and the Celtics would fall to the Lakers in six games, averaging 16 points, 9.5 assists, and 1.7 steals. He and the Celtics would go right back into winning in 86 in a six-game series over the Rockets. He would average 17 points, 6.2 rebounds, 5.3 assists, and two steals a game. They would then fall to the Lakers once again in 87 and six games as DJ would average 21 points and 9.3 assists per game. As Johnson and Parrish grew older, excuse me, and Bird and McHale became injured, Celtics would never make it back to the finals with that same core as they would essentially pass the torch to the Pistons in 88. By the way, passing the torch is walking off the floor before time expires. Um... DJ would retire making nine all-defensive teams while averaging 14.1 points, five assists, and 1.3 steals per game for his career, helping him make the Hall of Fame in 2010. Number 55, Grant Hill. And that might be the best kind of bucket, George, because that can wake everybody up. And this kind of like Derrick Rose Grant Hill could have been a way higher on this list if it wasn't for in, wasn't for injuries I collect a lot of sports magazines and if you didn't know anything about Grant Hill and saw the magazines I've collected you would think he was the greatest player to ever play and to be honest he was well on his way when he was in Detroit he would be co-rookie of the year with Jason Kidd in 94-95 while also making the All-Star game, averaging 19.9 points, 6.4 rebounds, 5 assists, and 1.8 blocks per game. He would make six straight All-Stars, and it would have been seven, if, but there was no All-Star game in 1999 due to the lockout. He would be around 20 points per game in his six years in the Motor City. And many NBA legends say that he was LeBron before LeBron was even a thing. Grant Hill. Not over the... All right. I I just want to say this about Grant Hill. We talk about Jason Kidd. When Grant Hill was healthy, to me, he was Jason Kidd. Grant Hill was the first LeBron James. He had crossover. He was triple. He was a horrible grown. He was, I think, the injury. Because... No question. Grant Grant was terrific. But LeBron is 30 pounds heavier... 
I'm talking oh, in yeah, terms of straight triple doubles, dominating the game, playing defense. The dude did everything. Never seen open court, especially the episodes that came out back in the day. Do yourself a favor and watch some on YouTube. He would be traded to the Magic for Chucky Atkins and Ben Wallace, as I said earlier. He would make the All-Star team his first year there, even though he only played four games. He had ankle injuries in Detroit, and he was not the same kind of player. So once he got to Orlando, he could not play an entire season. Playing 14 and 29 games after that four-game All-Star year. He would then miss the entire 03-04 season with with those ankle injuries. He would then bounce back and make an all-star game averaging 19.7 points starting in all 67 games he played in. But that was short-lived as he would play 21 games the next year as now he would have some knee injuries. He would only play one more year with the Magic before signing with the Suns to play alongside Shaq, Steve Nash, and Amari Stoudemire. His production would never be the same, although he would still average 10-plus points per game while playing most games in each season. He would then sign with the Clippers for his final year and average 3.2 points in 29 games. For all the injuries, Hill would play 1,026 games and average 16.7 points as he would make the Hall of Fame in 2018. Number 54. Adrian Dantley. And Beer wants the ball right away. Bird bluffs the double team. Dantley waving Lambeer away. Dantley fires again and hits again. Another player in a long string of 80 scores that who have been overlooked. His career pretty much makes any immaculate grid player happy. He would start out his career in Buffalo and win Rookie of the Year by averaging 20. points per game and 7.6 rebounds per game. He would then be traded to the Pacers and would only play 23 games there before being traded to the Lakers, where he would only be there for a year and a half before being traded to the Jazz for Spencer Haywood. Now, this is where he would explode to an all-time great. He would jump from 17.3 points per game to 28. He would obviously become an all-star for the first of his six in his career. He would then lead the league in scoring in 80 and 81, averaging 30.7 points per game. He would also lead the league in scoring 83-84, scoring 30.6 points per game. He would then be traded to Detroit for two second round, with two second rounders, excuse me, for Kent Benson and fellow Notre Dame alumni Kelly Trapuca. He would play two and a half seasons and still average around 20 points per game. He would then be moved to Dallas for Mark Aguirre, and then the bad boys took off and won their back-to-back championships. He would not play too many games with the Mavs over a year and a half, but was still a double-figure scorer. He would end his career in Milwaukee playing 10 games and finally averaging 5.7 points per game. Over his 15 seasons, Dantley would play for the following franchises. Clippers, Pacers, Lakers, Jazz, Pistons, Mavericks, and Bucks. You're welcome, Immaculate Gritters. He also won a couple scoring titles while you're in there, so if that's a category, go for it. 
He would also average 24.3 points per game and 5.7 rebounds and would be inducted to the Hall of Fame in 2008. Number 53, Penny Hardaway. This is just someone out thinking everyone else, knowing where everybody is. Another player that could have been higher if it was not for injuries. And I don't know why about the middle of this list, where why they all slip in here, but that's how it happened. As I mentioned last week, Hardaway was traded to the Magic on draft night for Chris Webber. As surprisingly, Shaq really wanted to play with him after working together on blue chips. May also say that Matt Painter's in blue chips, uh, boiler up. He and Shaq would become one of the best point guard center duos in NBA history as Penny would make four all-star games. First of which came in 94-95 where he would average 20.9 points, 4.4 rebounds, 7.2 assists, and 1.7 steals. It would also be the year where the Magic would make the NBA Finals and get swept by the Rockets as Hardaway averaged 25.5 points and 8 rebound, eight assists a game. Excuse me. He would only play 19 games in 97-98, and he would be sidelined by knee injuries and drop below 20 points per game in scoring. He would then be traded to Phoenix in 1999 and was still averaging double figures except for the 2000-2001 season where he would average 9.8 points per game in 4 games. His double-figure scoring would eventually end in 0304, where he would be traded to the Knicks, and then he would only play there for two and a half seasons. He would then be traded back to the Magic in February 2006, just to be waived two days later. He would then be retired for the 0607 season before signing with the Heat in August of 2007, just to be released in December of 2007. Penny is one of those guys like Derrick Rose, in my opinion, that should make the Hall of Fame for how impactful he was. He proved that the oversized point guard could work outside of Magic Johnson. And to me, that deserves to be recognized. Number 52, Elgin Baylor. The first player to use his athleticism and go, and go vertical with the game Baylor was an incredible scorer. He would win Rookie of the Year in 58-59, averaging 24.9 points and 15 rebounds a game, along with 4.1 assists per game, and make the All-Star game as the Lakers would get swept by the Celtics. He would make 11 straight All-Stars while playing two years in Minneapolis and then the rest coming in L.A. L.A. would be where he would somehow explode in scoring even more, as in 61-62, he would average 38.3 points per game. He was extremely successful when it came to scoring, but famously not so successful when it came to championships. As the Lakers would win their first championship since Mikan after he had left. He, he was technically on the roster, but I think he played like three games, so they he wasn't a part of it. He didn't get a ring. He would make 11 All-Star games. Score what was then the most points in the playoff game at 61 to be beat by Michael Jordan years later. And averaged 27.4 points and 13.5 rebounds to make the Hall of Fame in 1977. Number 51, George Gervin. Nearly 25 points a game. Here's Gervin. Ice trying to back down through the lane. Look at that underhand. Oh. He's so big, he 
Our second ABA player, if you don't count Rick Barry for being in the NBA first, Gervin was one of the coldest players to ever do it. He and a silky smooth finger roll started out in Virginia alongside a young Julius Irving, where his rookie year would be one of two seasons where he would not make the All-Star game. He would play another half season for the Squires before he was traded to the Spurs for cash. This may be the worst trade I've ever seen. He would make 12 straight All-Stars with the Spurs and be a consistent 20-plus point-per-game score, being, just like Artis Gilmore, one of the four main attractions in the ABA. He would stay with the Spurs through the ABA-NBA merger and would somehow take his game up another notch as he would lead the league in scoring in his second year in the NBA in 77-78 at 27.2 points per game. Every time I see ABA players' stats once they made it, once they made the NBA, it truly makes me wonder what league was better. This 77-78 season was the first of three straight scoring titles for the Iceman. As he would score 29.6 points in 78-79 and 33.1 in 79-80, outpacing World B3 by almost three points per game. 77-78 scoring title was where true drama was created. Going to the final day of the regular season, Garvin was ahead of David Thompson by .2 points per game. Again, two ABA guys. Thompson and the Nuggets played an early game in Detroit, Garvin's hometown, and managed to get DT the scoring record as he scored 73 including a then-record 32 and a quarter. The Spurs played a few hours later in New Orleans as Gervin needed 59 to snatch the title back. The Iceman started out ice cold from the field, and then he had 33 in the quarter, beating Thompson's record on the same day. Mind you that the previous record for points in the quarter was Wilt Chamberlain with 31. Gervin would end up with 63 in the game, and would beat Thompson by 0.1 points per game. And if you haven't, check out the dedicated section of this battle in Basketball Love Story on ESPN+. Plus. That whole series is great, but I love that one. I mean, it's all great. Just watch it. He would take a year gap from holding the scoring title and would take it right back in 81-82 as he would score 32.3 points per game, five points per game more than what he had had scored in the previous season. He would have three more years of 20 points per game scoring in San Antonio before being traded to the Bulls for Dave Greenwood to play with Michael Jordan in his second season. Gervin would score 16.2 points per game, and it would be the second year he would not make the All-Star team. He would end up averaging 25.1 points, killing it in both the ABA and NBA, and make it into the Hall of Fame in 1996. Number 50, James Worthy. (laughs) Number three guy for the Showtime Lakers. Big Game James is probably the best to ever run the lane on a fast break. B. 
being traded as a draft pick two years before the A2 draft, Worthy would become one of the luckiest people alive as he was selected with the number one pick by the Lakers. And they were off to the races. It took some learning at first, though. One of my favorite stories that Worthy tells is of one of his first practice. I think it's his first practice with Magic Johnson. Where Worthy was filling the lane, not even thinking about it, and then got hit in the back of the head with the ball. Magic told him, better keep his head up because the ball could be firing at him at any time. And kept his head up, he did, as he would immediately score 13.4 points using his quickness to get ahead on fast breaks. In the 84 finals in his second year, Worthy would average 22.1 points in a 4-3 loss against the Celtics. The next year, he would score 23.7 points per game, just two points behind Kareem as the Lakers exacted their revenge against the Celtics in six games. Starting in 85-86, Worthy would make seven straight All-Stars. After underachieving in the 87 finals while still scoring 20.7 points, though, he would come back and take the 1988 Finals MVP while averaging 22 points, 7.4 rebounds, and 4.4 assists in a seven-game series over the Pistons. He would even lead the Lakers in scoring in the 91 Finals while playing four out of five games against the Bulls. Worthy was a great piece of showtime that probably would have been just as good if he was on another team. But I'm glad he wasn't. He is, no joke, the player to look at when showing people how to run on a fast break. And that helped him get into the Hall of Fame in 2003. Number 49, Jason Kidd. They're daring him to shoot outside and try to keep him out of the middle. That was a pass right there. Let's take a look at the great pass by Jason Kidd. Right to Carter, went through three One of the most dazzling passers that the league has ever seen, Jay Kidd is a great point guard that defined an era of point guards. He started out in Dallas and shared the rookie of the year with Grant Hill, as I mentioned earlier, averaging 11.7 points, 7.7 assists, and 1.9 steals a game. He would then make the all-star team as we now look back and see he was the clear star of the three J's, which, if you don't know, comprised of Kidd, Jamal Mashburn, and Jim Jackson. And you think we came we come up with weird big threes these days. He would be traded halfway through the 96-97 season to the Suns, where he would be paired with Steve Nash for a little bit and make the All-Star team again in 97-98. He would then lead the league in assists for three straight years with 10.8, 10.1, and 9.8 starting in 98-99. He would then be traded to the Nets before the 01-02 season and take a one-year hiatus from leading the league in assists before doing it for two more consecutive years with 8.9 assists and 9.2 assists per game. However, the Nets would make it to the to the finals in Kidd's first year in New Jersey. But they got swept by the Kobe Shaq Lakers. Kidd would average 20.8 points, 7.3 rebounds, and 9.8 assists, and 2.3 steals. But again, Kobe Shaq Lakers. He would be joined by Vince Carter in 0405, and although exciting, would not result in much more 
than a couple of second-round appearances in the playoffs. Kidd would then be traded to play for the Mavs once again to help out Dirk Nowitzki in 07-08. Kidd would only be a one-time All-Star in his second stint in Dallas, which came in the 09-10 season when he was 36. The Mavs would go from getting bounced early in the playoffs to NBA champions over the first year of LeBron and the Heatles. Kidd was a great veteran guard that he needed to be as he averaged 7.7 points, 4.5 rebounds, 6.3 assists, and 1.2 steals in the 4-2 victory over the Heat, starting every game. He would then have one more year in Dallas before signing with the Knicks in his age 39 season. In 19 years, Jay Kidd would average 12.6 points, 6.3 rebounds, excuse me, and 8.7 assists per game as one of the best point guards of his generation, which would get him into the Hall of Fame in 2018. Number 48. Clyde Drexler. Jordan stripped by Drexler. Three on two. Percy. Porter gave it back. Drexler. Known mostly for his high-flying ability, Clyde was much more than just a dunker. He would be a 10-time All-Star over 12 years and would only average less than 10 points per game in his rookie year as he would go from 7.7 to 17.2 in his sophomore campaign. He would help lead the Trailblazers to the 1990 NBA Finals. He would do as much as he could in the 4-1 series loss to the Pistons, as he was the only Blazer to score 20-plus points per game. His stat line would end up being 26.4 points, 7.8 rebounds, 6.2 assists, and 1.8 steals against the Bad Boy Pistons. Which is pretty impressive, to be honest. Those guys could defend. He would then will his team to to the finals in 1992 and do about the same against MJ and the Bulls in the 4-2 loss. He would once again be the only trailblazer to average 20-plus points per game with 24.8 points, 7.8 rebounds, 5.3 assists, and 1.3 steals. He would then be a part of the Dream Team in the summer of 92 and run through the world with the rest of, you know, the greatest team ever assembled. He would continue to be a great all-star in in Portland, excuse me, until he got traded to Houston in 94-95 season and would continue to do the same Clyde the Glide things. Except that now he was playing with his former Phi Slamma Jamma fraternity brother, Hakeem Olajuwon. Drexler would join a Rockets team that just came off an NBA Finals win, and that was exactly what they did again in 95. The Rockets would sweep the the Shaq and Penny Magic as Clyde would average 21.5 points, 9.5 rebounds, 6.8 assists, and 1 steal in the series. He would then have two more years of being an All-Star in Houston, including the 96-97 season, where he and Akeem would be joined by Charles Barkley for a couple years. Clyde would play his final season in 97-98 where he would average 18.4 points in 70 games at the age of 35 and somehow miss the all-star game he would finish his career averaging 20.4 points 6.1 rebounds 5.6 assists and two steals per game being more than enough to make the hall of fame in 2004 number 47 carmelo anthony Got 
one of the smoothest jump shots of all time. Melo is one of the best scorers of the 2000s and 2010s. Becoming one of the first successful one-and-done players in college, Melo was drafted number three overall in the 2003 draft to the Nuggets. Behind LeBron and Darko Milicic. He would start out averaging 21 points per game in his rookie year, more than LeBron, by zero by 0.1 points, but still more than LeBron. He would stay in the 20-plus point per game range and made his first All-Star in 06-07, where he averaged 28.9 points, 6 rebounds, and 1.2 steals. He would make the All-Star game again in 07-08, but would miss the 08-09 game. He would then make eight straight All-Stars, including an 09-10, star, excuse me, starting in 09-10. But then 2010-2011 came around. Melo would be traded to the Big Apple to play for the Knicks. And believe me, Carmelo in the Garden was a sight to behold. He would immediately score 26.3 points in his first half season with the Knicks. He would then go on to lead the league in scoring in 2012-2013, by scoring 28.7 points a game. There's not too much playoff success, which is the main thing that people drag people drag Melo through the mud for. But he would stay in that 20 points per game scoring category until he was traded to OKC to form a new big three with Paul George and Russell Westbrook, all to take out Steph, Clay, Draymond, and KD on the Warriors. And, you know, since Melo and Paul George are small forwards and Paul is much younger, maybe Melo can come off the bench and, you know, mentor him. Well, me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I guess I, that answers that part. I, I mean, I don't know where that started, where I came from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pete, they said I got to come off the bench. <laughs> so that didn't last long. But... And it never really worked out in the end. As they would lose to the Utah Jazz in the first round, led by a rookie Donovan Mitchell. Melo would then be traded to the Atlanta Hawks and was waived five days later. So he would sign with the Rockets to team up with James Harden, who was coming off of an MVP season, and Chris Ball, probably the best point guard of his generation and one of Carmelo's personal friends. This should be fun. He played 10 games. He would be traded to the Bulls and waived a week later. He would then sign with the Trailblazers to pair up with Damian Lillard. And Melo, he wasn't bad in his two years there. But his age was showing. He would play his final season with the, with the Lakers and his good pal LeBron. And they would miss the playoffs. He just announced his retirement in 2023, so it'll be a while before we see Melo make the haul. Number 46, Carl Malone. A dominant scorer who never fell below 13.2 points per game in his career, the mailman was one of the best of the 90s. He would end up making 14 All-Stars. It would have been 15 straight if it was not for the 99 lockout. During those All-Star years, the least he would score would be 22.4 points per game, which was his last All-Star in 
This would help him become an obvious choice to be a part of the 1992 Dream Team alongside his jazz band member, John Stockton. Now, before I say this, I would like to make it clear. Carl Malone would have been a good player regardless. But Stockton made Malone. It is no coincidence how the third most scoring player of all time had the guy who holds the assist record by over 3,000 assists over Jason Kidd. I know that Malone had to make those shots to give Stockton a lot of those assists, but they were the most deadly pick and roll ever with the mailman tumbling toward the basket as he was most likely the strongest player on the floor. Anyway, with Stockton's help, Malone would win two MVPs. 96-97 and 98-99. This was including two straight seasons to make it to the NBA Finals against the Bulls in 97-98. Finals were not going to go to the Jazz because MJ took Malone's MVP selection over him personally. But Malone would still average 23.8 points, 10.3 rebounds, 3.5 assists, and 1.7 steals in six games. Now the 98 finals seem to be within reach. The Bulls kind of fell apart during the season and, you know, they kind of brought it back, but then Scottie Pippen got hurt in game six. So all the Jazz needed to do was win this game six and it would probably be the last straw that would break the Bulls back. Then Michael did this when Malone had the ball. The Bulls would end their last dance with another ring, and the Jazz would be sent home for the second straight time. Malone would average 25 points per game, 10.5 rebounds, 3.8 assists, 1 steal, and 1.2 blocks. After playing with the Jazz for 18 seasons, Malone would try to go for a ring by signing with the Lakers to team up with Kobe and Shaq. Even Gary Payton signed with them as a free agent. But even with that team being so stacked, they would lose to the Pistons in five games as Malone would average five points and 7.3 rebounds at 40 years old. As I mentioned earlier, Malone is one of the best to ever do it in his era on the court. And for that, he would make the Hall of Fame in 2010. Number 45, Earl Monroe. Can you take a guess? An incredibly underrated scorer who deserves a lot more credit. He started out his career by winning the Rookie of the Year in 67-68 in Baltimore by averaging 24.3 points per game. He would go to two All-Stars in four years with the Bullets, scoring over 20 points per game in every year there. He would then be traded to the Knicks in 71-72 for Mike Riordan, Dave Stallworth, and Cash. What even are these trades for all-time greats you get these trades? As I mentioned before, he and Walt Frazier would make one of the best backcourts in league history. 
although the Pearl would start out slow, not scoring 20 points per game until his fourth year with the team. But I don't think that he would care because the Knicks would win it all in 1973 as he would average 16 points, 2.8 rebounds, and 4.2 assists in the finals. Once he picked up his scoring again, Monroe would make two more All-Stars in the Big Apple. He would slowly dwindle down to single-digit scoring in his final season in 79-80. He would make the Hall in 1990, and if you haven't, do yourself a favor and watch his highlights. They're incredible. Number 44. Dwight Howard. Phoenix in a high-powered offense. Nice play from Howard. Ball loose. Howard comes up with a steal. Can they still get it? Yep. Good hustle. Nelson. Alley oop. Oh! Throws it down. The only reason that I said that Ben Wallace was the best rim protector of the early 2000s is because of Dwight Howard. Dwight was the best rim protector of the late 2000s and early 2010s. His career would start out on kind of a disappointing note as the number one pick in 2004 would lose Rookie of the Year to a Mecca Okafor, the number two pick. But he would get a turnaround in his third year, becoming an all-star for what would be eight straight appearances. He would, eventually, he would also eventually go from skinny high school kid to absolutely jacked to be able to keep up with the rest of the league's great big men. He would definitely do so as he led the league in rebounds from 07-08 to 09-10, averaging 14.2, 13.8, and 13.2 rebounds per game, respectively. He would also lead the league in blocks for 08-09 and 09-10 at 2.9 and 2.8, respectively. The 08-09 season would be the year where he would lead the Magic, pass the Big 3, or Big 4 in my case, Celtics, and LeBron led Cavs to NBA Finals against the Kobe Powell Lakers. The Magic would lose in five games as Howard would average 15.4 points, 15.2 rebounds, 1.6 steals, and four blocks a game. My God. The 08-09 season would also have Dwight Howard win his first of three straight defensive player of the years while leading the Magic. That would come to an end in 2012 as he was a part of a four-team trade that would send him to the Lakers to play alongside Kobe, Powell, and Steve Nash. But it looked a lot better on paper than a result. They would go 45-37 and and get swept in the first round by the Spurs. But Dwight would lead the league in rebounds for the second straight year. That would be his only chance in L.A. as he then signed in Houston to play alongside James Harden where they made the playoffs every year he was there. They even made the Western Conference Finals in 2015 against the Warriors. That was as far as they would make it. He would then sign with his hometown team, the Atlanta Hawks, in 2016, but would only last one year there. Here's where Dwight bounces around. Let's let him describe it. Uh, Actually, I was joking with uh, my trainer uh, earlier today. And I thought it'd be fitting. Uh, but we were just talking about how, you know, I started with the Magic. So I learned Magic for eight years. Uh, traveled to La La Land. Uh, learned how to work with rockets. Uh, <laughs> and I went and learned how to fly with some hawks. Got stung by the hornets. <laughs> this is a joke. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
through all of that, you know, it's taught me how to be a wizard. You know, uh, this was after he was traded by the Hornets to the Brooklyn Nets, just be waived the next day. He would only play nine games with the Wizards. He would then be traded to Memphis in 2019 to be waived in the next month. Then he would go sign with the Lakers once again to play with LeBron and Anthony Davis. This would lead him to falling out of double-figure scoring as he would fall out of his starting role for the first time in his career. But he accepted a bench role for the Lakers as he would be pretty helpful in the Lakers' championship over the Heat in the bubble. He would then sign with the 76ers the next year before signing back with the Lakers to end his career in 21-22. Dwight Howard will make the Hall of Fame. Count on it. Number 43, Alex English. Okay, I know I've said this a lot, but English is the king of the underrated slash overlooked score of the 1980s. Think of all the great players of the 80s. Bernard King, Adrian Danley, Dominique Wilkins. Dr. J, Moses Malone, MJ, Kareem, and Bird and Magic, and plenty more. Alex English outscored them all in that decade. So how come he didn't make the NBA 75? Or how have you possibly never heard of him? Because he played in Denver. But he would start out his career in Milwaukee and Indiana before being moved to Denver in 1980-1981 where he would immediately score 23.8 points per game. He would then make eight straight All-Stars starting in 81-82. He would then lead the league in scoring in 82-83 at 28.4 points per game. He would outscore himself in 85-86 and 86-87, scoring 29.8 and 28.6 respectively, without another scoring title. The Nuggets would make the playoffs in all but English's first year in the Mile High City, even making the West Finals in 84-85. English would sign with the Mavericks in his final year and would score 9.7 points per game at the age of 37. English is also the guy who Reggie Miller patterned his game after. So without English, we may not have had the three-point revolution that guys like Reggie and Ray Allen sparked. With all of his accolades... English would not be underrated in the eyes of the Hall of Fame, as he would be inducted in 1997. Number 42, Dirk Nowitzki. Nowitzki, high arcing three. Oh, a rainbow goes through. Look at the rainbow jump shot by Dirk built Nowitzki. upon the prettiest fadeaway that has ever existed. Dirk defied the odds time and time again. Originally drafted by the Bucks in 1998, Nowitzki would be traded on draft night with Pat Garrity for Michigan's Robert Tractor Trailer to the Mavericks. I, I cannot deal with these trades anymore. Uh, he would only average 8.2 points per game in his rookie year as an oversized power forward. You know, maybe this guy is just another soft European that can't deal with the grueling brutality of basketball in the good old U.S. of A. Check again. 
he would jump up to 17.5 points per game in his second year as he would have a starting role, as he and Steve Nash would get it going. Dirk would also shoot 46% from the field and 37.9% from three. And welcome to the stretch four. Mavs would make the playoffs as soon as Dirk would average 20 points per game. He would make 11 straight All-Stars starting in 01-02. Nowitzki would lead the Mavs to the 06 Finals as Jason Terry played second fiddle to him. Yikes. The Mavs would go up 2-0 over the Heat, but then fall apart as Shaq and D-Wade would win four straight to take the series in six games. Nowitzki was seen as a soft Euro once again as he would average 22.8 points and Terry would average 22 flat. But Dirk averaged a double-double with 10.8 rebounds, but you know losing four straight hurt his reputation a lot. The next year, Dirk would prove all the haters wrong as he would, oh, I don't know, win the freaking MVP, averaging 24.6 points per game and 8.9 rebounds. Maz would also be the number one seed as they would go 67-15, and 15, with Josh Howard being their second best player. Then the playoffs came around. The Mavs would become the third ever one seed to lose to an eight seed. But this is in a seven game series, not five like before. People wonder if Dirk could ever shake the choker label that was given to him. And, you know, that would take a few years. It would take until 2010-2011 before Dirk and the Mavericks would make it back to the NBA Finals to prove themselves. And this one was a doozy. Everyone, and when I say everyone, I mean everyone, rode off the Mavs going against the Heat with LeBron, Wade, and Bosh. But Dirk didn't care. Even when Dirk had a 101-degree fever in Game 4 of the Finals, the Mavs would beat the Heatles in six games. Dirk would finally get that monkey off his back as he would average 26 points, 9.7 rebounds, and two, point as- and two assists to bring the Mavs to glory and win the Finals MVP. He would make three more All-Stars after the 11 consecutive, and he would score in double digits in his final. He would score in single digits in his final season at the age of 40, making it only two seasons he would do so. In 21 seasons, he would average 20.7 points on 47% from the field and 38% from three as a seven-footer and became the greatest Dallas Maverick to lace them up. He would be inducted into the Hall of Fame earlier this year in 2023. Number 41, Steve Nash. That triggers the rush the other way by Nash. Oh, what a pass. You got to make that shot after you get that kind of stuff. Best point guard of his generation. Nash had insane skill that inspired the next generation. Falling to the 15th pick in the stacked 1996 NBA draft, Nash would not get a starting role until he was traded from Phoenix to Dallas in 1998-99. And he would not even become an all-star until 01-02 alongside Dirk Nowitzki as he would consistently average double figures in scoring. After two all-stars in Dallas, Nash would sign to go back to the desert to play under Mike D'Antoni in 2004. 
And my god, what a pairing that was. The Suns would go to the Western Finals in the seven seconds or less offense that fit Nash and company perfectly. Oh, Nash would also win MVP in 0405, scoring 15.5 points, which is the third least points per game average for an MVP, along with a league best 11.5 assists per game, as the fast paced offense helped out with that a ton. He would follow that season up with another MVP by averaging 18.8 points per game and another league best at 10.5 assists per game, along with a league best 92 percent from the free throw line he would follow that up with another season leading the league in assists with 11.6 per game in 06 07 making the all-star team in those three years and an extra just for good measure right in a row he would miss the all-star game in 08 09 and then come back with back-to-back seasons leading the league in assists with 11 assists per game and 11.4 assists per game in 09 10 and 10 11 respectively for five total years of leading the league in assists. He would also lead the league in free throw percentage in 09-10 at 93.8%. He would then be traded to the Lakers to team up with Kobe, Powell, and eventually Dwight Howard, but it looked a heck of a lot better on paper than on the court. Nash would retire an eight-time All-Star with two MVPs and one of the most efficient offenses to never win it all. Nash would also be the bridge between Reggie Miller and Stephen Curry as he would shoot 49% from the field and 42.8% from three for his career while averaging 14.3 points and eight and a half assists per game. Nash would easily make the Hall of Fame in 2018. And as we close in on 4 a.m. of the day, this will be uploaded. It is time for me to piece all this together. So... I just want to thank you so much for listening and quick shout out to all the sources where I got the clips from NBA, basketball composition, basketball action, Lamar Matic, backroom basketball, Portland Trailblazers, House of Highlights, 70s fan, and NBA Network. Thank you so much. It helps out a lot. And uh, yeah, that is it for this week. Be sure to follow me on X slash Twitter at DMR00. I'll talk to you next week. Peace.